Most of you guys know me by now. My name is Mario Mamina. They asked me to open the Word of God and take us to the Word of God this morning for us. Um, what better place to be than here, the first day of 2023, right? Among the body, God's Word, and our laps. It's awesome. Let's just pray with, pray with me, please, real quick, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, the psalmist says, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for for joy to the living God. That's, we are here this morning to hear from the living God, you. And the psalmist goes on to say that for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Just being here among your people with your word in our laps, this is where we want to be. This is, there's no better place that we'd want to spend. So God, as we're here to hear from you, the living God, we pray that you change us through your word, that we would see new truths in your word and be transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. So I know you were probably all out late last night, and you got up early here at church. I'm going to do my best to keep us engaged this morning as we go through. We're going to be in John chapter 4 this morning. Just thinking, I was just thinking a couple questions this morning. I was reflecting back on something Howard Hendricks had said, had given two questions. He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he had asked these two questions. We need to, I know it's early, but we need to think deeply. Why did God save you? Was it because you're the, you were the smartest, most good-looking person in Lincoln, Nebraska? <laughs> and God said, I'm going to save him or her. No. It's by his grace, his sovereign grace, his sovereign will that you are saved. That's amazing. And number two, the second question is, why has he left you here? What's your purpose? This year, 2023, is just rolled out before us. What's 2023 going to look like for us? What's your purpose? Why did he leave you here? To know him and to make him known. So that this year, you would dig into God's word. Maybe last year, you could compare it to last year. I just, this year, 2023, God, I just want to get to know you really deeply this year, in a, in a deeper way. And then number two, to make you known. I, I did what I could do last year. I, I worked hard at it to make you known. But this year, I want to do it a little bit, a little bit more. And that's what we're going to be settling on today in John chapter 4. Um, it's a familiar story in the Gospel of John, the Samaritan woman, when Jesus meets her at the well. See, we know uh, Jesus' commission to us 
was to go and to make disciples. And so this year, we're going to make them known. I want to make you known, God. We, we know the reason why it's important, because we've been saved, and we want to tell people the good news. Um, but, it's the, but it's the how, where we get stuck. How do, we, how do I share the gospel? How do I get out there and do it? And that's what we're going to look at today. The teacher of all teachers, Jesus, showed his disciples how to do it how to share the gospel, and to make himself known. And so we're going to look at that this morning, John chapter 4. If you just turn back one chapter to chapter 3, it's important when we look back at chapter 3 because chapter 4, we need to understand context of what John is doing here, the writer of the gospel of John. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eyewitness accounts of Jesus, right? Now, John is unique in that Matthew, Mark, and Luke start with Jesus' ministry in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. But John gives us insight what Jesus did between Jerusalem and Galilee. And so we have this special view of who he talked to, what he did. And in John chapter 3, we see that he's in Jerusalem, and he's with a man named Nicodemus. He's a He's a ruler of the Jews, knows the Jewish law, a very righteous man on the outside. He has this spiritual conversation with Nicodemus, but during this conversation, Nicodemus is thinking in terms of the physical, not the spiritual. And Nicodemus is thinking before he even asks, Jesus answers his question, but how, how must I be saved and who can be saved? And Jesus answers the question. He says in verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you need to be born again to be saved. And Nicodemus is thinking physically. He's going, well, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? That doesn't make sense. But Jesus is talking spiritually. You must be born again. And number two, verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit. So that's how it happens. You must be born again. And it is God's sovereign will that it happens. And His Holy Spirit blows upon you. And then in verse 16, who can be saved? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Don't you understand these things? And Nicodemus just, it's not connecting. He takes him back to the Old Testament to help him understand And so we have a law-abiding Jewish leader face-to-face with God. Jesus, fully man, fully God. Surely a Jewish leader, righteous guy on the outside who knows all the laws and all the rules and the rights and wrongs, surely he has a chance to be saved, right? He can be face-to-face with the Messiah. Now in chapter 4, John takes us to chapter 4, and we have the inverse or the mirror image of chapter 3. We have a righteous Jewish man face-to-face with the Messiah, and in chapter 4, we have a Samaritan woman, a Gentile, the first recorded Gentile convert to the gospel in chapter 4. Can someone who's not Jewish, someone like the Samaritan woman, be saved? Can you be saved? We're going to look at that this morning. Chapter 4, 
We're going to start in verse 3. Jesus, in chapter 4, Jesus left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. It's very interesting. He had to pass through Samaria. If you noticed, well, in, verse, in chapter 2, he's in Jerusalem. Then Jesus goes to Judea. And then chapter 4, we have Jesus in Samaria. Does that sound familiar? Acts 1.8, Jesus commissions his apostles to go. You shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends, to the remotest part of the earth. And Jesus is exemplifying this. He exemplified it before he even told the apostles to do this. So here we are in Samaria. Now, what is significant about Samaria? We've got to do a little bit of a history lesson, so stick with me. We're going to go back in time a little bit to the Old Testament here. If you remember in your Old Testament, you had the kingdom of Israel had split into two kingdoms in 931 B.C. after King Solomon. You had his son Rehoboam, who was king of the southern kingdom, and then you had Jeroboam, who was king of the northern kingdom. So you had two separate kingdoms. Now, in the northern kingdom, you had a king called King Omri, and he was known for two things. One is he built, a, he built a hill and built a city upon that hill and named that hill Samaria, which eventually gave its name to the entire region. So Samaria, that's where Samaria came from, was this guy, King Omri. Now, he was the seventh king of the northern kingdom, so he was known for that, number one, and then number two, he was known to be the most wicked king to date. He, had, he was the seventh king of the northern kingdom. All of them did evil in the eyes of the Lord. All of them were wicked. And King Omri was the worst to date. He was the most wicked. He was known for that. Only to be surpassed by his son, King Ahab, in wickedness. And so you have this region, King Omri established, Samaria, and it has this long line of idol worship, of wickedness. It was just, it started to become a, a place of idolatry. So that's, that's Samaria. So Jesus and his disciples go into Samaria. And this is a very unpopular place. If you were Jewish, you did not want to go into Samaria. You, if you were trying to get into Galilee from Israel, going straight north to Galilee, you had to go through Samaria unless you wanted to take an alternative route around Samaria. And so it, was, it would take a, to put it in perspective, a two-and-a-half-day walk straight to Galilee, or you could take a five-day walk and go around, across the Jordan, up north, and then back west across the Jordan into Galilee, or you could take the Via Maris on the east along the Mediterranean and then cross back over into Galilee. To put it in perspective, too, uh, it'd be like walking to Grand Island, but rather than going down I-80, you decide to take a long journey around because you don't want to go through York. You don't like the people in York. It is a place of wickedness. No. If you're from York, it's all right. Don't take it personally. So this is where they go. They, they pass through Samaria. Why? Jesus said he... Well, in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Isn't that interesting? Jesus had to. He had an appointment, a divine appointment with somebody, and he's still doing this today. Perhaps it is you this morning. And so, verse 5, 
So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now we have to do a little bit of history again for context, just to set this all up. Sychar, where is this? Sychar was a city about one mile from a very famous Old Testament city called Shechem. Now Shechem was the place that Abraham moved to when the Lord called Abraham out of the land of Ur. Abraham comes back, Genesis 12, and he comes into the land of Canaan, and he establishes um, his place to stay would be in Shechem, Genesis 12, and he builds an altar there to the Lord. Then two generations later, you have Jacob, when he comes back from Padan Aram after um, working for his uncle, he comes back to this place, Shechem, in Genesis 33. And Jacob had dug a well about a half mile from the city of Sychar. So it's this, all this region right here, it's really important. We're going to get to why a little bit later. So Jesus is at this well, it's about noon, heat of the day, the sun's high. And what does the scripture say about him? It says, being wearied from his journey, he was sitting thus by the well. That's amazing. Because Jesus is fully God, yet he's fully man. And we see his humanity here. He's tired. He's thirsty, and he's here at this well. In verse 7, the Then came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So Jesus initiates this conversation with a woman who just walked a half mile with pot, empty pot, to fill her pot with water. And the disciples go into the city to buy food, and it's just Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And Jesus uses this to teach the disciples how to share the gospel. Ultimately, us. But she's taken aback. She's like, how is it you are asking me for a drink? I'm a, woman, I'm a Samaritan woman. In other words, Jews don't share dishes that Samaritans have used. You just don't, you don't do that. Why the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans? Well, we did a little bit of history, but a little bit more. Not only um, had the northern kingdom mixed with idol worship, wickedness, if you remember back in 722 BC, when Assyria came and took the northern kingdom, Israel, into captivity, all right, transported many Jews back into Assyria. But, he, but the king of Assyria left Jews in Samaria, some Jews. And then he took people from Assyria and Babylonia and transported them into this land of Samaria. So what happened? We had some Jews and transported Gentiles, non-Jews, coming back into Samaria, and they started intermarrying together, which created a mongrel race, a mixed breed of a Jewish Gentile person. And so the Jews despised the Samaritans. I mean, in fact, if you were looking for the, most, the ultimate insult, we see here in Scripture, do you remember when the the Jews were rejecting Jesus, the Jewish leaders, they called him a Samaritan. 
They said, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, it was an insult. And Jesus is here, and she's thinking, what in the world? Why are you here talking to me? It's because he had to. He had a divine appointment. And he was to show the disciples how to share the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. It's a mystery that we're going to see. How did he teach the mystery of the gospel? And so in verse 10, Jesus answered her and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and we, he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Like Nicodemus, she's thinking in terms of the physical. Jesus is talking in terms of the spiritual. Jesus is saying, If you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink you, all, you think you just need physical water, but really what you need is spiritual water for your soul. And he starts going deep and he uses his word to start to awaken her mind, to bring light, to enlighten her mind. And so he, she should know the teaching of the Torah. The Samaritans believed in the first five books, only the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's it. That's where they sat not the rest of the Old Testament. So she should know the teaching of the Torah and be watching for the Messiah. She should remember when the Lord took bitter water in the wilderness and making it sweet when the Israelites cried out to him in Exodus 15. Or she should remember that later God made enough water to flow out of the rock of Mount Sinai to give water to hundreds of thousands of Jews in the wilderness. She should remember that. She was like the Israelites when the Lord said through Jeremiah the prophet, in Jeremiah 2, for my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They reject, not only did they just reject God, but then they tried to kind of create substitutes for their souls, to satisfy their souls. This is what Jesus is talking about, not physical water. A cistern was hewn into the earth to collect rainwater, big pits. And God called their substitutes like a big pit that you're trying to hew to catch rainwater, but it's cracked. It's got cracks all over that thing, and it can't hold water. We do this, don't we? When we try to create a substitute to make us feel better on the inside or peace, to find peace on the inside. What substitutes are you trying to use to satisfy your soul? I ask you. Think about it. Is it money? Power? 
business, sports? Is it like in this woman's case, love and relationships? She's only thinking, if I would not have to thirst anymore and hug this jar, lug this jar a half mile here and back, I would be happy. If only I found a solution, or if only I found a soulmate, I would never be lonely again. Um, all substitutes that never truly satisfy. And so it's easier to deal with the external issues rather than the internal. And this is where Jesus is going, so she's just feeling a little bit uncomfortable here. Rather than deal with, talk about satisfying the internal need by our surrender to Jesus' lordship in our lives, we want to talk about the physical. But Jesus doesn't let her off the hook. Let's keep going. Verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So Jesus now exposes the heart problem in order to bypass her mindset on the physical. She's had five husbands, and she does not deny the accusation at all. By Samaritan law, nobody could marry this woman. She was unmarriable at this point. She was damaged goods. Not that any guy probably would want to marry her at this point either. She had been looking for satisfaction to her soul, to relationships, but forgotten that within every relationship she went into, she brought herself. And she had an eternal problem that needed to be fixed. And now she's here in front of the Messiah and it's getting exposed. I mean, she's an outcast. Right now, she's drawing water at noon. She, you don't draw water at noon. You draw water early in the morning with the rest of the women, but she can't because she's an outcast. She's made a mess of her life, and Jesus exposes the cracks in her life. The closer you get to Jesus, the more cracks are exposed in your life. This is what Jesus is doing make a little analogy here, I, I work for a lighting, commercial lighting company, and we sell the best quality lighting we can find for our customers for the right application. And this always happens, especially in an elevator. It happens in other applications, but specifically in an elevator for whatever reason. It's a closed space, new lighting, we'll stand there with the customer, we're looking at the light, it looks great, and we look down at the walls and on the floor of the elevator, and we see cracks, and we see scuff marks, and we see gum stuck to the carpet. We see just grime that wasn't there before because the light wasn't that good. But once we put the right light in, now all of that's exposed. And then the person inevitably says, I got to clean this up. And the closer we get to Jesus, it's the same way. We get to the light. We get close to the light and we see these things and we're like, I got to clean this up. But the problem is we cannot clean it up. Only he can clean it up. That's why we need to take a drink from the living water. We need to take him to clean us up on the inside, to be born again, to be made new. See the theme that John is writing here? To be born again. So we don't like our sin exposed, though. And we're going to try to, like, we'll try to detract from, from having our dirt, so to speak, put out in the open. 
and neither does the Samaritan woman, it appears. In verse 19, we see, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, that's kind of a random comment, isn't it? She recognizes that he's a prophet because somehow there's some divine intervention where he knows her deepest, darkest issue. So he exposes that. And then she brings up a debated religious issue. Um, Could it be that she's intentionally steering the conversation away from herself so as to get out of Jesus' crosshairs? Have you ever experienced this when sharing the gospel with somebody and there's conviction of sin and you're talking to them about God's word, and you're getting close to Jesus, and then, whoa, we're getting a little uncomfortable. Well, what about X, Y, Z? And what about this? And what about this over here to kind of detract the conversation so that we don't have to deal with my issues? Let's talk about some theological issue that I have a problem with. And we have to stay on point. So Jesus shows us right here how to stay on point when you're sharing the gospel. But before we go down that road of how Jesus responds, what is she talking about? Another quick history lesson here. The topic the woman brings up is an added contention between Jews and Samaritans. So remember, they're in Sychar, one mile from Shechem. Shechem is between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. There are two mountains that the Lord used as symbols when the Israelites entered into the promised land. If they chose to obey, they were to place a blessing onto Mount Gerizim. If they chose to disobey, they would place a curse. A curse would be placed upon Mount Ebal. Now, when Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, they conquered the land, he's dividing up the land, then he takes all the tribes and he brings them to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And he he says, guys, remember... Remember what God said. Six tribes here, six tribes on this mountain, six over here. There's a blessing, Gerizim. Curse, Ebal. And they assembled there. And the Samaritans believed in the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy. That was chapter 11. And so they had a high view of Mount Gerizim. And now when the kingdom split into two, you had Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north, and to keep Jeroboam, and to keep his people from going back into Jerusalem to worship, he builds an altar on this mountain so that people can worship, his people can worship. David, his kingdom, established the place of worship in Jerusalem. So you have these two places of worship. Which is the right? Which is the right place? Let's talk about this. Let's not talk about me, Jesus. Let's talk about this issue. But Jesus keeps it on track. How does he do it? By three points, he makes three quick points, verses 21 through 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so Jesus makes three points here. We see first, well, notice the urgency in verse 21. An hour is coming, 
Verse 23, an hour is coming. We got to get, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the gospel. When we share the gospel, we ought to do the same. Because when you die, it's too late. You got to deal with the heart issue now. So in verse 21, it says, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, both places of worship will one day be obsolete. This conversation will not be worth either one of our time because I'm here. I am the Messiah. The hour is coming. I'm standing before you. There's no time to waste. Remember when Jesus finally made it into Galilee, he entered Galilee in the book of Mark 1. It says that Jesus entered Galilee saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Sense of urgency. Number two, in verse 22, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The Jews were the first messengers. Jesus was Jewish. Therefore, the gospel came out of the Jews. But Jesus is revealing the mystery right here, that salvation is not for the Jews. This is the mystery. Salvation is not for the Jews. John's writing this. Think about it. Chapter three, of course a Jewish man would have a right to be face-to-face with Jesus, but a Gentile? Now that's a mystery. It's for the entire world. And then, verse, and then the third point, he explains that worship will replace both Gerizim and Jerusalem. Those two places of worship are temporary. God is spirit, verse 24. God is invisible, divine as opposed to human. Why is that significant? Because the Messiah will be worshipped within the hearts of men, women, children, from that point on till the end of the age, wherever you are, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, lots of temples. We are a temple. Individual believers are temples. So verse 25, the woman just replies here. She says, the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to Jesus. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Samaritans believed in Teheb. They believed in the Messiah, that he would be a teacher. But he would be more than a teacher. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be way more than a teacher. I'm the living water. And right here in verse 26 is a beautiful verse because Jesus gives affirmation right here, clear as day. He is the Messiah. I am the Messiah. And then we see this switch. At that moment, she thinks, I, I got it. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came and were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. See, the disciples don't understand what's going on. They just came back from the city of getting food. And then meanwhile, the the woman leaves her water pot and runs a half mile back into the city. She abandons the old physical water because she just received the living spiritual water. And and that's, that's just what we do, isn't it? When we find Christ, 
that substitute that we had to try to fill, to get peace and joy and happiness, we exchange it for Christ and we abandon. We abandon the old substitute, the old broken cistern. And it may be an exaggeration to us because she says, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. And we don't know the rest of the conversation. Perhaps he told her more, but to her at that point, it doesn't matter. That was the main issue for her. And she's thinking, for me, that's everything. That's everything. And she goes back and says, is this not the Messiah? Is this not the Christ? And the men of Sychar would be dressed in their traditional white robes coming out of the city to figure out what's going on. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is saying this, that fulfilling the Father's work is more satisfying and sustainable to Jesus than food. He's illustrating Deuteronomy 8.3, that man does not live by bread alone, but, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Psalm 19 relates God's word to the drippings of a honeycomb. It's so sweet. And it enlightens the eyes and restores the soul. That's food for us. I liken it to also my work in sales. You could have the worst day you've ever had in sales. The biggest deal you've worked on in your life and it falls through and you got nothing. You're coming home and just depressing. But you shared the gospel with somebody that morning, or over lunch, you had a conversation with somebody. Our mission for the company I work for is sell to tell. So we sell lighting, but we talk and tell about the light, Jesus, with our customers. And so if we get that one chance, I don't care really at the end of the day that I lost that big deal. It was a great day. It was a successful day because I got to share the gospel with somebody, and that was awesome. I don't care what happened that day. That's what in a sense, Jesus is talking about, it's, I don't care about physical food. I, I'm doing the work of the Father, and that's filling my soul up, and I'm pumped. I'm energized. In verse 35, do you not say that there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Okay, so... Think about it. We're there at the well, Jesus and his disciples. He says, lift up your eyes. Look. What's, who's coming out of the city? He's not talking about grain or corn. He's talking about souls. And the men of Sychar are coming out of the city dressed in their white robes. The fields are white for harvest. You guys, disciples, thought it was all for the Jews and for you guys. But I'm telling you, this is for the world, and there are souls that are ready to hear, to ready to be harvested for the gospel. So go. Go into the streets and the lanes of the city and the highways. Find those who are spiritually crippled, blind, lame. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. Go to all the nations. 
Matthew 13 says that the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. Jesus has gone ahead of us planting seeds. One biblical scholar said, The trouble is not that the fields are not white. The trouble is that the laborers are not ready. How are we doing, Faith Bible Church? Are we ready? Are we ready to make 2023 to be an amazing year for the gospel? Just going out. And like she said, you don't have to be super articulate. Hey, I met Jesus. He told me everything I've done and saved me. And I want to, I want to bring you to church. I want to tell you about him. Verse 36, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. When we engage others with the gospel, we're cultivating this seed that's already been planted, the field we're cultivating it by the, the, what's been planted by Christ and his word. Is this, is this kind of true for you? Maybe you have a testimony like this. A long time ago, someone planted the seed. Jesus planted that seed through somebody or through his word. And then someone else came along a little couple years later, watered that seed, told you about Jesus, didn't click yet, didn't quite make the connection. It just, it just wasn't time yet for the Holy Spirit to blow upon you, remember John 3? And then one day, years down the road after being watered, the Holy Spirit blew upon you and, he's, and you had the faith to believe in Christ. This is the whole business that we're about. This is the work that we do as followers of Christ. It takes the burden off of us because the work's already been, been done. The seed's been laid and it is not us who save people, it's the Holy Spirit. Could the Holy Spirit be blowing on you right now where you're sitting? This morning, first day of the year, the Holy Spirit's blowing on you. How are you to respond? How did the men of Sychar respond? Let's look. Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So how did they respond? Verse 39, they believed in him. Verse 41, many more believed. They heard the testimony of the woman. I was once lost, now I'm found. Come see Jesus. That's it. I think every one of us in this room can do that. I was once blind, now I see. You've got to come see Jesus. If someone like her could be saved, there should be hope for anyone. That's John's point. We have a righteous Jew and then the Samaritan woman. Could she be saved? Absolutely. Can you be saved? Absolutely. In verse 42, they heard for themselves that Jesus is the living water. 
we have heard for ourselves and know, Ephesians 1, by listening and believing, you're saved. So they hear God's word through this woman, and they know, and they've spent time with Jesus, that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews, but the last part of this verse of 42, but that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That would be mind-blowing back then. That is, that is the mystery of the gospel. If you are a believer this morning and have never embraced the living water, Jesus, I ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Jesus extends to you the same offer he offered to the Samaritan woman. Abandon your substitutes and embrace the living water of salvation and relationship with your creator. You know where the broken cisterns of substitutes lead to. You know it. Embrace the living water, Jesus. Let today be the day you believe and place your faith in Jesus, the Savior of the world. So, how did Jesus use the encounter with the Samaritan woman to teach his disciples the mystery of the gospel? That's our question. Here's what he did. By crossing the cultural divide and reaping what others had sown. In other words, the gospel which is provided for the world will require us to cross geographical, cultural, and ethnic barriers to harvest what others have sown to be a church body concerned about cross-cultural world missions is to be active about what Jesus is concerned about. And what's amazing is later in Acts 8, we see after the church is persecuted and everybody's scattered, Philip goes to Samaria. And what happens? He's sharing the gospel in Samaria and people are getting saved. The seed was planted. Jesus showed them what to do and they go back there. And the Holy Spirit blows on people, and people are getting saved. It's amazing. And the book of Acts tells us also in Acts 10 that the Jewish believers were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. Like, this was just mind-blowing. So Faith Bible Church, we've got to get out, not just across the street in our neighborhoods, but we've got to be concerned about lost souls all over the world. We need to be involved in missions, cross-cultural missions. It's what Jesus is concerned about. This is what he's showing right here. In case we missed it, the gospel which is provided for the world will require us to cross geographical, cultural, and ethnic barriers to harvest what others have sown. Are you willing to obey the Lord and go? The fields are white for harvest. I took my family to Honduras last two, three years ago we went. It was wonderful. It was, I felt risk, though, in going. I did. I mean, expense. It's not the safest place in the world to go to. But I thought, let's go. Let's just go. In like two months, made the decision, and we got out of town, and we went down there and shared the gospel. It was fun. But maybe you're thinking, well, I can't go. I can't do that. Okay, fine. Where, what is your influence right now? in your business, in your home, at your school. I, I put this to the test two months ago with my branch in Omaha. We do a weekly Bible study, and it's been something on my heart for a long time to invite 
personally invite customers and vendors to this Bible study. We're going through the book of John. I thought we're going to do John chapter 3. We're going to talk about who can be born again and how must I be saved to be born again. And I thought, I'm a, we're just going to preach. I didn't do a bait and switch. I said, we're going to put together a flyer. It's going to say, come, we're going to feed you breakfast, breakfast and Bible, pancakes, eggs, bacon, the whole nine yards, and you're going to hear a special message from the Bible from Mario, Mamina, and uh, just come. We had 10 people show up. I told my team, I said, I don't care if one person shows up. We're going to do this because I believe that God has planted seed and the fields are white for harvest and now more than ever, people are wanting to know the truth and they, they are desperate for the truth. And we know the truth. We just got to go tell them about Jesus. I saw, is this real? Ten people showed up, and I preached from John 3. What must I do to be saved? Who can be saved? You must be born again, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit. And afterwards, people from, who were not believers saying, what? I had one person tell me that was the most contagious message I've ever heard. Another one said, I'll never forget that illustration on faith, and Whatever. But I'm just, the point is, people want the light. And we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and it's our job to go. Jesus has planted the way already, and watering souls, let's just go and show up in 2023 and bring people to Christ. We don't have to be super articulate. The woman wasn't. She just said, hey, I was blind and now I see. Come. And last year, reminded of Romans 10, how will they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? How? How are people going to do that? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Right? May our feet at Faith Bible Church in 2023 be beautiful as we go bring the gospel to a lost world. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much for your word. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for saving us by your sovereign will and your grace. God, this is going to be an amazing year. And now more than ever, people need the light. It is, it is dark. But the darker that it is, the more brighter the light. So let's go. We just pray for help in that, to give us boldness, to give us creativity, and that you would just work through us mightily. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.